This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you guys ready to study the Word this morning? And turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you were here last week, uh, you would have gotten the introduction of the book of Ecclesiastes, which we're going to be studying for the spring semester. And I've been looking forward to this study for a long time. I've been prepping for a long time, and I hope you are as encouraged to study this as I am. Um, last week, we saw several truths. We, we, we looked at the despondency of life apart from God. And I want to do a little bit of review here before we dive in today, just in case you missed last week, but then also just to, to be able to set the stage for today, because today really just continues the conversation from last week. It's continuing the thoughts that Solomon began with last week. And so pick up in your notes, and let's just get to work here very quickly. You, if you were here last week, this is going to be a big review. If you weren't here, this will set the stage for you. Ecclesiastes, number one, is a historical book. It is a historical book. You see in verse 1 that this is the words of the preacher, the son of David. And as you look through chapter 1, you find out that this, this is King Solomon, more than likely. Uh, David's son, the only immediate son of David who ruled after him in Jerusalem. And what we learn about the preacher in Ecclesiastes coincides with what we know about Solomon from uh, 1 Kings. And so we saw last week that this is a real book uh, written by a real teacher teaching God's real people at a real moment in history. Um, and so it's a historical book. Secondly, it's an honest book. In verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's five uses of the term vanity. And there are going to be uh, about 33 more uses of it throughout the book. 38 times he's going to use some form of that word uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that word literally means breath or vapor, meaning that just as you blow your breath when it's cold outside and it just evaporates within seconds... The scriptures are teaching us here that life is so transient. We are literally here today and gone tomorrow in an eternal, uh, from an eternal, eternal standpoint. Life is fleeting. It's futile. It's meaningless. But he means it even more deeply, not just from a time sense, but also from meaning. It's not just that our lives are momentary. It's that our lives are absolutely meaningless as they are. If this is all there is. And so that's why thirdly, I said last week that it's also a hopeful book. It's a historical book. It is an honest book. But it's also a hopeful book. Because the key phrase here is in verses 3 and 9 of chapter 1. When he talks about life under the sun. This is another common phrase that you're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaning that life here on earth. 29 times he's going to use this phrase in the book, pointing us to the fact that if this is all there is, if all we have to hope for is life on earth, then everything we do, everything we work for, everything we pursue is meaningless. It's futile. It's transient. There's no meaning to it. That's why Jesus Christ is so important. This is why life apart from God is so meaningless, so desperate, and why life with God through Jesus Christ gives value and meaning to everything we do. And we closed our time by looking at that last week, and we did that by fast-forwarding to the very end of the book and, and Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I shared with our congregation last week that you cannot appreciate nor understand all of this despondency and honesty in the book of Ecclesiastes if you don't understand the phrase under the sun and if you don't see the ending. Because the end of the matter is this, he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the meaning of life. And so there's the hope. The hope is that even in the midst of this transient temporary world where everything is meaningless apart from God, there is a God. And this God sent his son Jesus Christ to give meaning to our life and all of the things that we pursue. So this week, we're going to continue with chapter 2. And you're going to hear familiar chords from last week's song and verse but just a little more focused. 
And so I want to pick up in chapter 2. We'll read through this, and then we're going to dive into our text and try to be efficient today as we work through this long, uh, this long uh, text of Scripture. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. You and I are the most blessed and wealthiest people who have ever lived on the planet as a culture. And you're thinking, Chris, you have no idea what's in my bank account. <laughs> but here's why I know that to be the, the fact. The American culture is lavishly wealthy. I mean, even those who are on public assistance still have luxuries that millions of people in the world do not have. The fact that we have indoor plumbing, the fact that we have running water, and we can drink that water without any fear of viruses or sicknesses, those facts alone place us in the upper echelons of cultural societies. We are so wealthy. And the, fact, and the, and the stark fact is this, the scary part about it is this, we don't even know it. We don't even know it. And the reason we don't know it is because we only see our life as we see it. 
but that doesn't change the fact that we are so blessed and so resourced in this country. And you have been billed a set of goods from the moment you were born that the pursuit of the American dream and the luxuries that we have here is really the very essence of what it means to be a human being. And as a matter of fact, even as you look at foreign policy and as you look, as, look at how we perceive other countries, we perceive other countries through the lenses of the blessings and the wealth that we have here. What I'm ultimately getting at to set the stage today is so often we as people, whether Christian or non-Christian, believers or unbelievers, we look to what's normative from our cultural stance for, to allow that to color our lenses and to dictate to us to what our perspective of life is going to be. You can rewind back thousands of years. And the people of Israel, there were a lot of similarities between uh, these people in the B.C. times and the people who live today in the United States of America. You see, Israel was God's favored nation on earth. It was a literal nation. It was a country with real laws and, and a real king. And, and they were God's favored people on earth. And that favored uh, status made them uh, think more highly of themselves than they should. It made them want the consumerism and materialism of their day just like others around them. They wanted for themselves a king so that they could be like every other country. God wasn't enough for them. And you could start tracing and seeing the similarities between ancient Israel and 21st century America. And Solomon is writing in the midst of that context. And so this morning as we read chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, so we may be thousands of years removed, but we're going to find that we are not unlike our Israelite brothers and sisters. The reality is Solomon is conducting an experiment as he ends chapter 1 and talks about all the, the vanity of life apart from God, now he's going to conduct an experiment and basically say, let's test some things. Let's test my theory that everything under the sun is meaningless and pointless apart from God. And he's going to see if there's anything on earth, anything under the sun that will give him lasting meaning and ultimate satisfaction to his heart. And see, the truth is, that's exactly what his fathers attempted to do before him. It's what his sons attempted to do after him. And it's what you and I and every other human being on earth tries to do today. Find something or find someone who will fill the void of our lives in order to achieve ultimate happiness. And what Solomon will show us today through these scriptures is that it's all going to come up empty. It's failed experiments. It's failed tests. We're just like our Israelite brothers and sisters. We just know it by a different name. We're going to see today that the American dream won't satisfy us. The pursuit of the American dream is also meaningless apart from Jesus. And so to illustrate this truth, Solomon's going to show us how three major pursuits of our time under the sun are ultimately pointless without Jesus and while at the same time pointing us towards something else, someone else who will ultimately satisfy us. So first, I want you to see this in the text. In the first big section of this chapter in verses 1 through 11, we find that the pursuit of happiness is pointless. The pursuit of happiness is pointless. In verse 1, he says, come now, I will test you. He's talking about himself. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. As I was finishing college in 2001, so at the end of the 1990s going into the 2000s, the big buzzword in Christian circles was purpose. And so Rick Warren published a landmark book for church growth called The Purpose Driven Church in the early 90s. And then in 2002, he published his bestseller, the biggest bestseller of all time, The Purpose Driven Life. You ever heard of it? You probably have, even if you haven't read it, you've heard about it because it is sold as, even up to 2007, it had already sold 30 million copies. This puts it in the category of the Bible as far as bestsellers in the United States 
uh, of America. But in that time period, the big buzzword, the big mantra of life was purpose. I want to find meaning. I want to find purpose to life. And if that was the case back then, I really believe that today's mantra would most definitely be happiness. As a matter of fact, when you look through society, when you look at politics, when you look at sociology, a lot of the debates we have center on the happiness of the individual. Who are you to deny me happiness as I define it, as I see it? Happiness is the mantra of 2017 Western culture. Just pursue whatever makes you happy. Is this not what Solomon is saying in verse 1? Pursue pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But he says this also was vanity. See, this whole idea and fascination with happiness, this isn't new for us in America. It's actually really literally written in our Declaration of Independence, right? That, that we have the right here to pursue life, liberty, and happiness as we see fit. This is the doctrine of hedonism that says that happiness or pleasure is humanity's highest goal or greatest good. But thousands of years before Philadelphia... Solomon had the same mantra, and boy, did he ever pursue it. But he's telling us today that everything he thought would make him happy actually didn't satisfy. He was left singing the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. Verse 2 says this also was vanity. Now let's see some of the things that he pursued and how... Just as they didn't satisfy him, they won't satisfy us. Pleasures won't satisfy you. Pleasures won't satisfy you. He said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Uh, he goes on in, in uh, um, verse 4 and talking about wine and partying. And so laughter, pleasure, wine, partying, they won't satisfy you. Jim Gaffigan is great to listen to. He'll make you laugh but he won't answer life's ultimate questions. A glass of wine may have its place, but it still leaves you wanting. And we know from both the Bible and conscious experience that alcohol can have both good purposes, but also really killing purposes as well. As Zach Eswine points out, there's no end to the commercials that show the joy alcohol can bring you, but you never see the commercial on Super Bowl Sunday with the party girl hugging the toilet at 3 a.m. or the dad pulling off his belt in a drunken rage. So we know that alcohol leaves us empty as well. Verse 8, he says, I also gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Not only did he pursue laughter, not only did he pursue wine, not only did he pursue partying, but he also pursued art and sex. Solomon didn't need an iPod because verse 8 says he simply bought the band. And, and, and he didn't need pornography because he had all the women and sex he could download in real time, in real life. 1 Kings 11.3 gives us the raw statistics. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand different sex partners. This guy would make Hugh Hefner envious, Right? He had everything, all of these pleasures, but yet happiness didn't last. He's telling us today that pleasures won't satisfy you, but he also tells you that possessions won't satisfy you. Look at, look at verse 4 and all of the things. Let's just, we'll just pick up here and look at all the things that he bought and accumulated for himself. Houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, Pools and irrigation systems, lavish irrigation systems for the forests of fruit trees that he had. He had servants and slaves. He had herds, flocks, silver, gold, treasures of foreign kings. This guy had it all. First Kings 5, uh, chapters 5 and 6 says that Solomon built God's temple. And 1 Kings 7.1 tells us that his own palace that he lived in took 13 years to construct. It's how big, it's how lavish that it was. We also learn that he built houses and shrines for his wives. Now this was an undertaking, right? 
I mean, 700 wives, and he built houses and palaces for them. Today, thousands of years later, the American dream tells you this, that if you graduate from the right college, get the right job, marry the right guy, live in the right neighborhood, drive the right car, vacation in the right places, and have 2.4 children, then life cannot be better than this. Until you get all of those things, and deep down, you're still empty. You see, the thing I love about Ecclesiastes is how raw and honest and penetrating it is in the human soul. Because right now, there's, there should be this aspect in our hearts that's saying, yeah, that's right. I don't even know that I thought about it before, but yeah, I identify with that. Pleasure won't satisfy you and neither will possession, Solomon says, but neither will accomplishments. Accomplishments won't satisfy you either. Verse four, he says, I made great works. In verse nine, he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me. There's been a lot of talk over the last seven days about the goat, right? The greatest of all time, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Tom Brady has it all, at least it seems. But what do you do when you have everything you've always wanted and you're still wondering, is this all there is? After Super Bowl win number three several years ago, Brady was asked this question on 60 Minutes. And he said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And when the interviewer interrupted and asked, so what is the answer? Brady could only say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Well, see, Solomon was the goat of his day. Solomon was the greatest of all time. He says as much in verses 9 and 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my, I, my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Is this not describing the American dream in the United States of America today? Whatever makes you happy, whatever pleasures you, go get it. Don't suppress that. It may just turn to gas later, right? I mean, don't suppress those feelings. I mean, that's what culture teaches you. If it feels good, do it, right? Solomon says this is what he did. And it left me empty. The pursuit of happiness won't ultimately satisfy you no matter what form it takes. Pleasures, sex, controlled substances, laughter, possessions. It's not by accident that you look at some of the great icons of our culture from the last several decades and look at where their life ended up. Think about Robin Williams, the funniest man of his generation. Wealthy beyond imagination, but he takes his own life. Whitney Houston, as a music major and someone who majored in voice, probably the greatest single voice in pop music of the last 50 years. I mean, a phenomenal talent, but lost it all the voice as well as her life because of addictions on foreign, uncontrolled substances. You see, the things that we think are going to satisfy us leave us just as wanting as before. And today you could be here and you're thinking, if I just had one more vehicle, if I just got one more raise at work, or if I just had the right job, or if I could just find that spouse, if we just had another kid, if we could just move to another location if I just had what those guys have, then I would be happy. And Solomon says, not so fast. It's not from wisdom that you seek this. It won't satisfy you. Now, I want to make sure that we don't misinterpret what we're hearing today. The things that we've described, the things that we've looked at, the things that Solomon amassed for himself, were those things evil? Most of them, not at all. Most of them are good gifts from God. Most of these things are gifts given from God to his children for us 
to enjoy. They're very good in and of themselves. It's just that, as Dr. Aiken says, they can't be our final guide. They can't be ultimate. He goes on to say, pleasure is a good thing that if turned into a God thing becomes an enslaving thing. And it's why so many people in your neighborhoods and in your dorm rooms today are walking all around as if everything is great while carrying loads of chains behind them. Because they're searching for meaning in all the wrong places. The pursuit of happiness is pointless without Jesus. Number two, the pursuit of wisdom is pointless. The pursuit of wisdom is pointless. Now he sums all of this talk up about pleasure and he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now that phrase, striving after the wind, he's going to use this one over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes as well. And the picture is basically, go out in the parking lot today and grab a bag and try to bag the wind and go store it in the storehouses. If you're bored today, maybe you want to go try that. I mean, that would be fleeting, right? You can't capture wind. You can't store up wind. It's impossible. And, and that's his point, is that all of these things we're chasing after and we're trying to bag is very similar to just trying to bag up and can the wind. It's, it, it's useless, and then he transitions and he says, well, so I turned to something else. So pleasure didn't do it. Happiness didn't do it. Accomplishments and possessions didn't do it. So I turned to wisdom and madness and folly. Now, you remember last week we talked about this. We talked about how he contrasts wisdom and folly. And ultimately what he's looking at is right living versus foolish living. And, and, and I think we can boil this down today to morality. We as Americans love morality, don't we? We, we, we aspire to live upright, judicious lives in our society. And as a matter of fact, when you talk to any person about spiritual matters, more than likely they're going to come back and say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person, right? I mean, that is the mantra of Western society. And so we place a high commodity on upright, moral living too. And so that's what he's turning to now. So what about just being upright? What about being moral? He then he says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Now, this is a hard phrase to translate. It's a hard phrase to interpret. But basically what he's saying is, son, don't think that you can do any better. Don't think that you can explore something that I haven't. Don't think that you're going to uncover under a rock meaning and existence and pleasure in this life under the sun because I've done it all. And I'm telling you, don't waste your time. Just don't waste your time. I've tried it. Nothing satisfies. The pursuit of wisdom is pointless. So here it is. He goes on, though, and tells us this. You must consider your morality. You must consider your morality. I love verses 13 and 14. He says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And so what is he basically saying? You should consider your life because if you're living foolishly, it's probably not going to end very well for you just as, as you walk on life. If, in, in life. If you live uprightly and you live morally upright lives and you live wisely on this earth, on this planet... It's probably going to work out better for you under the sun than if you didn't do that. So you should consider your morality. But he also says this, you must also consider your mortality. Because look at what he says at the end of verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise in other words death is the great equalizer so regardless of whether you live uprightly and do everything that america says as an uh, as would be an upright model citizen or if you just go in and out of prison until you die the reality is both of you still die and so he even says what use is there in even being a moral person if this is all there is under the sun if life here is all there is, that's pointless too. So 
then he gets to what I think is one of the most sobering verses describing life under the sun in verse 17. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. You can think, man, this is just ominous. This is dark. This dude needs to see a therapist, right? And I'm not sure that I want this in my Bible. I hated life. I thought life was a gift from God. Remember the phrase, under the sun. If this is all there is, these 72 or 76 or 85 years, if God's generous with you, if this is all there is, and we just live life and we die, and there's nothing else, then what's the point? You turn on CNN this evening, or you turn on Fox News, and you look at everything that's going on around the world. You read the newspapers, you go online. Don't you see where it's very easy just to say, man, I just hate this. Isn't there just something raw and honest about that? And see, even that reflection is, is pointing us to a greater reality because it's your conscience, your inward spirit God has given you to goad you and prick you to say, there's something more. This can't be it. So hold on to your seat, hold on to your emotions, and let us get there. So the pursuit of happiness is pointless. The pursuit of wisdom or the pursuit of morality is pointless. So what about something else? What about a legacy? What about passing on a legacy or an inheritance to your progeny? Well, he's also going to say the pursuit of career is pointless. He's going to transition. So pursuing wisdom was vanity and a striving after wind. So then he goes to verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the men who will come after me. He even says that his work, I even look at what I do with my hands, what I do with my time, my job, my career, my vocation, this thing I studied for years to attain, and then I spend an overwhelming majority of the time that I have on earth doing, even that is pointless and useless to satisfy me. Why? Well, let me show you three things he tells us here. Number one, you're troubled by it as you live. You're troubled by it as you live. Verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil. I hated it. I hated my work. I hated my job. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Do you see the picture? Even at night, I come home, I eat dinner, I, I comb through Facebook and my phone, I turn the light off, and I'm lying there looking at the ceiling, and I'm just processing all of the worthless, meaningless stuff I did today, and all the stressful, meaningless things that are waiting on me tomorrow. Or am I just describing my life? <laughs> no, this is what Solomon is, he's dealing with real life. Our jobs, the job that we couldn't wait to get, the wealth that we couldn't wait to amass, we get it, and then weeks in, we're going, whoa, 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 what? This, this is what I signed up for? Just clocking in and out, in and out, and then I die? You're troubled by it as you live. Number two, you can't take it with you after you die, he tells us. In verse 18, he says, one of the things in which he's toiling over is that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And then in, verse, and, uh, in verses 21 to 22, he says, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Verse 22, what is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Remember verse 3 of chapter 1, where he says, what profit do it, does a man have for all his toil under the sun? And, and we explained last week how that's talking about business ventures and how if you just see your whole life's work as one big business investment, Solomon is going to say when you die, there's basically no profit, there was no gain to it. And he says you can't take it with you after you die. You have to leave it. So everything that you've worked decades for, and I just alluded to this earlier, but do you recognize that your job, 
If you work an average 40-hour-a-week job, that you spend more time at your job than anything else in your life other than sleeping. And so how does that make us feel that the thing that we will spend most of our time doing, Solomon says that in the end, in contrast with eternity, it's pointless too. You can't take it with you after you die. The old, ad- the old adage is really true. You never see a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse, right? Everything that you have is going to be left and someone else is going to use it. And that leads to a third vexation for him. You're troubled by work and money as you live. You can't take it with you after you die. And thirdly, you can't trust it with others after you leave. Part of his whole problem is he says that I have to leave it with someone else and I don't even know what they're going to do with it. I've tried to operate wisely with it, but what are they going to do? Statistics tell us that 60% of inherited wealth is gone by the end of the second generation. 60% of inherited wealth is gone after the second generation. And 1 Kings 14 tells us that an invading army came and took all of Solomon's wealth away from his son, Rehoboam, before his son even died. And so you see the scriptures even show us that Solomon's point is true. We're troubled by it when we live. We can't take it with us when we die, and we can't trust it with someone else after we're gone. Tim Keller points out that the man who created Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, you may have one of those on your bookshelf, He spent a lifetime categorizing every word in the Bible. What took him a lifetime to do, you and I can now do in 10 minutes at the click of a mouse. But that's what he spent his entire life for. You see, there are going to be generations that are going to follow you. And who knows what's going to replace what you did In an existence where this world is all there is, even career is meaningless. The job you spend more of your lifetime doing than anything else other than sleep has no ultimate profit. It's a waste, Solomon says, if this is all there is. So are you sufficiently despondent now? If you are, then the Spirit is having His effect through the Scriptures. Because reflecting upon the pointlessness of happiness, the pointlessness of wisdom, and the pointlessness of your career and our pursuit of the American dream is meant to ultimately point our direction somewhere else. Ultimately to someone else. Ultimately upward to God. C.S. Lewis famously said this in Mere Christianity, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made... For another world. He must have read the Psalms. Where one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. Psalm 73 verses 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. And here's where the grand truth comes in. Is all of these things that we have looked at, they are pointless left to themselves. They are meaningless if this is all there is. But the reality this morning is this is not all there is. There is something more. There's something more that you are created for. There's something more that I am created for. It's a different type of pursuit. It's not the pursuit of the American dream. It's the pursuit of God. And what Solomon is going to tell us and that the rest of the scriptures are going to uh, complement and affirm is that the pursuit of God is not pointless. The pursuit of God is satisfying. Solomon had pursued everything else and found it lacking. You have tapped into controlled substances. You have tapped into money. You have tapped into career, pleasure, sex, and everything else this world has to offer. You, in the 21st century, And if you're very honest with yourself this morning, you know that it's not satisfying you. Even the things that you have fought so hard to get and to attain. But then flip it upside down. Once God comes into the picture, once Jesus comes into your life, as Dr. Aiken says, everything is meaningless without Jesus, but with Jesus 
we can now enjoy everything. And here's the great truth of life this morning. If you hear this morning's message that everything on earth is just wicked and evil and useless and I don't even need to pursue any of this stuff, I should just die today, you miss the point of what we've talked about. It's not that all of these things are evil. It's not that they're wicked. It's that our pursuit of them over God is wicked and they leave us meaning, feeling meaningless, filled with meaninglessness. But when God is the source of your joy and God is the goal of your joy, then what we're going to find is that all of these things that God gives to us, they actually find meaning and they actually can bring joy to my life because I'm enjoying them through my relationship with him and through the lens which he's given me. Let's dive in here a little bit and see the gospel in Ecclesiastes as we end our time this morning. Number one, God is the source of your pleasure. He is the source of your pleasure. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better. Finally, right? That's good. That's positive. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So just stop right there. So what, this, what Solomon is saying is joy is good and joy can be found. Like I'm telling you all this meaninglessness. I'm telling you all this uselessness in, in society. But I'm telling you there is joy out there and there's nothing better than it. That should wake us up and say, yes, Ecclesiastes is a hopeful book. Now he defines it. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Just as God has ordained the meaninglessness on planet earth and all of these things in and of themselves, that same God from his own hand provides joy to enjoy them. There's the missing link. Why does Tom Brady still think there's more to life? Why is Robin Williams hopeless at the end of his very successful and comedic life? Why does Whitney Houston turn to all the things she turned to in order to fulfill her and to satisfy her? There's a missing link. Because all of these things that we're pursuing in order to find joy, we can only find joy in them if they are attached to the spigot of the flow of God's grace himself. We find out here at the end of Ecclesiastes 2 that God is the very source of your pleasure. Do you want pleasure? Attach your life to God through Jesus Christ because he'll offer it. Verse 24 says, this is from the hand of God. Verse 26 says, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Do you want wisdom? Do you want to pursue knowledge? Do you want to pursue joy? Then get it from God because he is the source of of your pleasure, but not only is he the source of your pleasure, we gotta go one more step further before we end. He is also the goal of your pleasure. He is also the goal of your pleasure. Another reason why nothing here on earth satisfies is because we are looking for that thing, that object, that person to be the goal of my joy. I've pursued it, I've attained it, but I'm still joyless. And it's because God himself is not only the source of it to give it to you, but he's also the goal. I'm going to show you and trace a storyline through the scripture to show you how God lavishes us with blessing, gives us our wealth, gives us our intellect, our education, our career, our families, all different kinds of pursuits on earth as a means through which to bring and draw our gaze and our joy towards God. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, God is not against pleasure. He wants you to find your pleasure in Him. Ecclesiastes 5.19, which we're going to study in just a few weeks, sums up wealth and possessions this way. God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. I love that phrase. He's given you these possessions 
and the power to enjoy them. Don't see what you have. Don't see what you're pursuing as just useless and meaningless. See them as a means for your joy to draw you upward to God because God actually gives you the power to enjoy them and then to accept your lot and rejoice in your toil. Rather than hating your toil like Solomon, you can rejoice in your toil because it's a gift from God. Solomon says. 1 Timothy chapter 6, going to the New Testament. Very, very similar. Very similar ideas what Solomon's getting at in Ecclesiastes. In his closing remarks, Paul says this to Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, stop there. Who are the rich in this present age? You are. You are. We immediately think of Bill Gates. We immediately think of Jack Welch or Donald Trump, right? No, the scriptures would say you are rich in this present age. Contrasted against the early church, we're very rich. As for the rich in this present age, as for those who are pursuing the American dream, right? Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the biggest truths that I believe God wants to illuminate to our hearts this morning. It's not wrong for you to like your nice house. It's not wrong for you to buy a new car. It's not wrong for you to take a job that would offer better benefits or even a promotion. What Paul tells us here is that God actually gives us these riches. He gives us these blessings and along with it, provides us with the power to enjoy them. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Let it bring you happiness. Let it bring you joy. Just don't set your hopes on it. You set your hopes on God and He will actually give you the power to enjoy life as He meant for you to enjoy it. Colossians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 talking about work. We're talking about how pointless career is apart from God. Well look how Paul gives us definition to it in the book of Colossians. In verses 16 through 17 he says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Here it is. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, God is not just concerned about your spiritual life today. He's not just concerned about the eternal state of your soul. He's very concerned with how you work. He's very concerned with your attitude in your work. He's very concerned with your performance in your work. Are you working with all your might? Because verse 23 of that same chapter says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You see, we could, we could almost replace that phrase and not for men with under the sun. If all you're working for is under the sun and for men, yeah, it's pointless. It's meaningless. But if even your work and even your child rearing, and even your marriage, and even your relationships, and even your recreation, shooting hoops or playing video games, if even in all of that, we're acknowledging the gift of God in it and enjoying the pleasures God has given us from it, it honors the Lord. You see, there are two different types of individuals Solomon and Paul are talking about. There's the person without Christ who pursues all of these things, but at the end of his life or the end of her life, they're left wanting. They're left wanting more. But then contrasted against that is the person who finds their identity in Jesus, who finds their worth in God, and God gives them the power to actually have joy in their toil here on planet Earth. How is all of this possible? I want to close with one last paragraph from the book of Colossians. Because again, you hear very similar language that's in Ecclesiastes. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, under the sun. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, the cry of the scriptures to you is to let loose of your life, stop the empty pursuits, and pursue Jesus. Repent of the idolatry of your heart that says the American dream will satisfy me and make me happy. Repent of the idolatry of marriage. Repent of the idolatry of family. Repent of the idolatry of possessions and accomplishments and turn to Jesus and confess that sin and place faith in him and say, I want you to become my life so that my life is no longer futile, so that my life is no longer meaningless. Give definition and shape to my life so that I can now set my heart and my mind on things that are above rather than seeking to be pleased by things under the sun. Oh, and by the way, Father, when you do that, now give me the life, breath, and energy to enjoy what you've given me under the sun. This is the gospel this morning according to Ecclesiastes. I want to encourage you to grapple with those truths as we conclude our time today. And if the Lord is moving in your heart, if the Lord is drawing you towards himself today, don't ignore that. But reach out today. Reach out to a pastor. Reach out to an elder. Reach out to a friend and say, I want to talk more about this because I want the Christ life. I want the meaningful life. And I want to surrender and repent of meaninglessness. And then next week, we're going to continue our trek to see more of how the gospel gives meaning and shape to our life in this meaningless existence under the sun. Father, today we thank you. We glorify you because you've allowed us to be people who glorify you through your son, Jesus. And Father, I know that I am so tempted to seek materialism, consumerism, houses, lands, fame, a whole host of things to satisfy me. But Lord, I so feel like Solomon today because I know and have experienced how empty they leave me. But Father, I also know the joy of pursuing you I know the joy of praying to you and reading your scriptures and singing praise and worship to you. And I know the fulfillment and the joy that that brings. I've experienced it. I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. And so I've taken refuge in you. And so I pray today that there would be more men, more women, more children who would say, I want to taste and I want to see that he's good. I want to take refuge in him. So Father, would you work across this place and would you cause us to sacrifice on your altar all of these meaningless things that we try to find our hopes in. And I pray that instead that you would give us Jesus. And then when you give us Jesus, Father, I pray that you would become our life and now you would give us a new pair of glasses through which we see all of our possessions, all of our pleasures, and all of our accomplishments, all of our work, our happiness, And that maybe for the first time in our adult lives, we would enjoy our toil and we would be content with where you've placed us because you've given us the power to enjoy them. Thank you for the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. Thank you for rescuing us from the American dream because it too is meaningless apart from Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.